0: I was born and raised in Utah, but uh, moved to the East Coast when I was young, went to school in North Carolina. And um, I like to call myself a anti-wildlife trafficking motorcycle journalist. Um, I've been living on a motorcycle for a few years now. Um, between, mostly between the states and Southeast Asia, um, doing a lot of work in Laos. I'm currently here in Colombia, um, working to um, document the positive things that are being done to protect ecosystems and the animals and people who depend on them.
1: Janelle Kosmoschewski. Coming up next, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's MaxBMW.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and B-Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum, Nick Sanders, Terry Borden, Sandy Borden, Jack Borden, Jack Borden Graham Field, Austin Vince, Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel, Ed March, Glenn Headstead, Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, Dave Barr, Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates, Herbert Schwartz.
0: Zoe Cannell,
1: Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins, Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker, Simon
0: Thomas, Lisa Thomas,
1: Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Wick, Seth Simon, Elizabeth Martin,
0: Carol Deval. and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com
0: Okay, well, my name is Janelle. Um, I am from the States and um, I'm currently here in Colombia working to um, document the positive things that are being done to protect ecosystems and the animals and people who depend on them. So I think. Documenting the positive things, you know, can have several impacts, including bringing more attention and focus to the people and projects who are working on the front lines of conservation. And, you know, if there's successful methods that are being implemented there, then they can potentially be spread elsewhere.
1: Janelle, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So I noticed you avoided saying your last name. Is that because you have trouble saying
0: it? Oh, no. Well, my last name is Kosmoshewski. <laughs> well, I usually go by Kaz.
1: Oh, that is so good.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's yeah, more, more easy for people to know and remember and read. Yeah,
1: I was going to say your last name's as difficult as the title of what you're doing right now. Go back and say that again. What do you say you're doing right now?
0: Anti-wildlife trafficking motorcycle journalism.
1: And is that something you went to school for? I don't think I've run across anyone doing this before.
0: No, that's that's a title I made up myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what is it? I went it? to
0: school for um, for biology, so my background is in the sciences. Um, but while I was in university in North Carolina, I learned about the illegal wildlife trade, and it just ignited this fire inside my chest that still burns today. And I just knew that I wanted to dedicate you know, much of my life to helping end it.
1: So what is that?
0: Um, Wildlife trafficking?
1: Yeah, talk about that.
0: So wildlife trafficking is an incredibly lucrative, global, illicit trade. Um, It's hard to estimate the exact worth, but they, they think it's around $20 billion per year traded of, illegally trafficked wildlife goods. Wow. So that's, you know, any any wild animal in its entirety living, like the, the tropical birds that are traded here from Colombia or, you know, the animal's parts like the tiger bones or elephant tusks, rhino horn, all of those things are included. And there's many reasons for the trade. Um, you know, there's the pet trade or there's traditional chinese medicine or you know even fashion like caiman skin or or trinkets made of ivory things like that
1: and difficult to understand the monetary value the t- the exact monetary value because it's all black market isn't it none of it happens above board
0: exactly and it's not um it's not it's mostly run by these organized crime syndicates, often in the same trafficking rings as drugs and arms and even humans. So it's very well organized. And dangerous. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting here in Colombia because um, there's a lot of internal trading going on, illegal trading with pets but more and more we're seeing things that are exported um, to the US, to Europe and even to Asia.
1: Are those illegal exports and imports? I mean, is each country sort of do they they have rules saying no you can't do it but it's happening anyway?
0: Yeah. For the pet
1: market I'm asking.
0: Oh yeah, there um there's an international organization called CITES and they put the regulations on which animals can be traded. So there are some, you know, loopholes that are being exploited where if, a, if an animal is bred in captivity, then it's considered different than a wild harvested one. But now they're able to use wildlife forensic sciences to test the DNA to figure out where exactly these animals are coming from and which populations. So if they find an animal that is still alive and can be rehabilitated, then with this genetic information, they can re-release it back into the same population it came from. Um, but otherwise, you know, they can figure out if many species, you know, look similar and often the, the customs officers are not well trained in, you know, species identification. So DNA analysis also helps them figure out uh, You know what exactly they're dealing with.
1: From what I understand with DNA analysis, it's quite a process. They're they're certainly not going to do that, I wouldn't think, for every animal that's crossing the border.
0: They're not, um, but it is getting easier. Uh, Before they used to have to take DNA samples and send them away to a lab, but now uh, there's a genetic barcode of life project that has a kit that can. It takes less than an hour to identify this. Genetic barcode.
1: Oh wow! So that, that definitely yeah. really helped then. And are our countries? Do you know are countries other than just the U.S. and Canada? Maybe some European countries. I mean, are all countries doing that when when animals are going in and out of the country?
0: Um, I think they're they're getting on board. It sort of depends on on the state of wildlife trafficking in in that location. Um, certainly, in places like Singapore and and Bangkok, they're having they're utilizing this more and more because of the extreme frequency with which they're, they're seeing trafficked items enter into their country.
1: I want to talk more about what you're doing um, and what you have done, but first I want to go back to your start in motorcycling because it's it's kind of a good story, I (laughs) think. (laughs) So what, what is it about motorcycles? Okay. what, What age was this at? Just give me the age. I think it was, what you tell me?
0: Um, let's see. I was probably about 16 when I went on my first motorcycle ride on the back, on the back of a bike.
1: Was that, was that it? Was it, that's what sold you on it? Was the first ride? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Tell me (laughs) about the ride. Tell me about how this happened and you getting on the bike and going for the ride.
0: Yeah. You know, I can't even specifically remember the first ride. I just remember, experiencing this sense of freedom and speed and just absolutely falling in love with it. And from that point on, anyone who I knew had a motorcycle, you know, I would just, you know, please take me for a ride and go as fast as you can, you know, like (laughs) do a wheelie, (laughs) please. So I just loved it. And I got to this point where I didn't want to need anyone for that experience. And uh, when I was 19, I um, took out, my first loan. And without telling my parents, went and bought a a 250 Ninja off the showroom floor in Virginia. And uh, I didn't really know how to ride a motorcycle at that point. So.
1: And what do you mean, didn't really know how to ride? I always thought it was either new or you didn't know.
0: <laughs> okay, so I, I had ridden like a, a TTR once on dirt. And, um, you know, just like learning how the clutch works and things like that. And it didn't It didn't come that naturally to me like i it wasn't uh it wasn't so easy for me that day, but that was the only experience I had had
1: <laughs> so do you so, buy the bike and what happens you you just get on it and ride it away
0: well yeah they they're kind of like, oh, are you gonna trailer this and it's like no i'm I'm gonna ride it so they uh they point me to a nearby parking lot um which I you know spend a few hours practicing in and uh, getting to know the bike a bit. And, um, you know, I guess I get to a point where I feel confident enough to go out and, you know, show my friends what I just bought. And I meet up with a friend who also has a bike and we um, ride around on these country roads in Virginia. And, you know, it's an amazing day. It's like one of the best days of my life until we get split up. And uh, he, I guess he just takes off and goes home because he lives out in the country. So I start to head back um, to where I live. And I only had my permit at that time. So I was doing two things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was riding by myself and I was riding on the highway. <laughs> and mm. and uh, as inexper- inexperienced as I was, I uh, go to pass a car on the left around this you know, curve to the right, and I sort of get off onto the, the shoulder, the side of the road, and there's a bunch of gravel there, and I just have no idea what to do, and I just sort of accept that I'm going to wreck, which luckily was, uh, well, it was into the median, but it was tall grass and soft dirt, and uh, I'm probably going, I don't know, 40, 45 miles per hour, and the bike just slides on its on it, my, the left side and slides for maybe 30 feet and finally the shifter catches in the ground and spins the bike around and throws me off so this grass going every which way on my my helmet and rips the shield off and luckily i mean i had all good gear on and just my my jacket came up a little bit on my hip, and the some grass took the skin off, but other than that, I was fine um, so there was this man whose house was right on the highway, and he saw the whole thing, so he came running down, and his arms were covered in Harley tattoos, like ride or die, you know, and he's just like, "Oh, I hate to see a rider go down, especially a girl." <laughs> <laughs> And I'm just like, please help me get my bike out of here before, you know, any police come. So he helps me push my bike out of there, and uh, then I have to call my dad. And, you know, I tell him, so (laughs) I just bought a motorcycle today, and I just wrecked it. And he just is in disbelief for the longest time, just saying, like, no, you didn't, no, you didn't, no, you didn't, no, you didn't, repeatedly. So finally he believes me and, um, comes to pick me up and where the shifter had caught in the ground, it broke the shifter plate. Um, so I, 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 wasn't able, you know, to change out of gears at all. There's no way I could have ridden it unless I was just riding it, you know, uh, in second gear or something the whole way. But, uh, he had a friend who could weld aluminum. And so they welded that shifter plate. And one of the things I'm really thankful for my dad coming through for me for is uh, afterwards, he had me get on the bike to see if it felt right, to see if it was repaired well for me. And I think um, if I hadn't gotten back on that day, you know, that first day, I could have been really afraid. Uh, of it, so I'm really thankful that he he pushed me to do that and yeah that was that was the beginning of it all.
1: <laughs> it's notable that your parents are not into motorcycling, so I mean it really says something about your dad that he that he did that his daughter goes and gets this bike without telling him, and then he encourages you to you know he can see you're passionate about it,
0: yeah, it's funny because I'm the only girl I have three brothers and After I bought this bike and had this experience, my dad went out and bought a Harley. So I think that kind of like gave him, you know, the excuse or the permission to finally go out and get a bike because I think I guess he had been wanting to for a while, which I had no idea. So.
1: (laughs) Well, as as you mentioned, you're, you're passionate about wildlife. Where does that come from?
0: Oh, that's been with me my entire life. I mean, I've always had a really strong connection to animals and I've always just been completely enamored by them um but my mom as well she she's a very nurturing woman and she she loves animals as well and I have this this crazy memory of of her that I think kind of ignited some of my love for biology and curiosity because we had this, like, huntress of a cat that would go out and bring home all these, you know, crazy animals, rabbits, and, like, the neighbor's um, decorative fish out of their pond. And uh, one day it brought home this pregnant rat. And my, my mom, <laughs> she, she cut open the belly of the rat and tried to resuscitate the fetal baby rats inside and I remember watching this just being like disturbed but also very intrigued (laughs) and uh she's I mean we always had a lot of animals uh we had you know like four dogs six cats birds fish reptiles hamsters and uh my dad didn't want any of it so he put up with a lot but yeah my mom is definitely an animal lover (laughs) (laughs)
1: You end up moving at one point um, to the the coast, to um, Seattle. What brought you to Seattle?
0: Uh, So I was living in Thailand for about a year and a half in the south of Thailand before that. And um, I moved to Thailand after my degree because I wanted to sort of get my feet wet in the world of working against the illegal trade, the wildlife trade. And uh, when I arrived in Thailand, I was sort of going to these national preserves and just, you know, saying that I would like to work there for free. <laughs> but they they were sort of like, uh, we're not really set up for that or we don't do that. And when I was in Bangkok in the city, um, I would talk to people about this passion of mine and they, you know, they would tell me that very powerful people there sort of had their hands in wildlife trafficking, and it really wasn't safe to speak up about such things unless you're under the umbrella of a large organization. So I ended up uh, living in the South, um, teaching science and math um, at a school there. And um, while I was in Thailand, I met someone... Who ran a nonprofit in Laos? And the nonprofit was humanitarian work, so bringing clean water to children in village schools. And um, I moved to Seattle to, to be there and to be there with him and build a more sustainable version of the nonprofit. So together we worked on a project to build a social business. So, um, you know, a business model where all the profits funded this, um, these humanitarian needs. So we, uh, did a physical fundraiser in Seattle and then an online one through Indiegogo. And then about a year later moved to Laos and, uh, we built a coffee house there. So in the South of Laos, there's amazing coffee, which... Nobody really knew about because they were just mixing it in with really low-quality Vietnamese coffee. Um, But it's actually, you know, we had it cupped by uh, a coffee roaster in California, and it received uh, 86, 87 score, which is really high. So it's really good quality Arabica coffee. So uh, we developed relationships with the local farmers and they would bring the coffee right to our door and we would roast it and mostly selling it to tourists because it's not really a coffee culture there, which is really interesting. So we had uh, we invited like 17 of the village chiefs to uh, bring their individual crops of coffee to our Our roaster and we roasted it for them and brewed it and you know had them try it they didn't really like the taste of it they're used to like the three in one you know the sugar cream coffee instant powder mix um which is very sweet and not really coffee but uh yeah that's kind of the first step and you know bringing quality coffee like showing them what it is and then with the money that we made from this coffee house business, uh, we would drill clean water wells for children in this in the local coffee growing communities and also give hygiene education. So I was teaching little kids how to wash their hands and things. Uh, so that business is still up and running. Um, there's volunteers there and it's uh it's difficult to make enough money to actually fund the the water projects that we want to do, but um it's actually a really good model, you know, because so many nonprofits uh just have to keep asking for money and to to build a business where the objective is a social cause. Um it's a yeah, it's a really great idea. So um yeah,
1: Do the farmers or did the farmers not roast their beans before? Was it always sort of sold off just as it is? Like, you know, they they pick the beans and then they send them off. Or as you were showing them what it was like as a finished product?
0: Um, There was one man who would roast his own coffee, but it was just in a pan over the fire, which is a lot of work. You have to stir it continuously and it's really, really difficult to get an even roast. Um, so we, uh, we actually had a handmade roaster that was made out of, um, there was like a, a computer fan and it was run off of rice husk, which once you burn the rice husk in this coffee roaster in a low oxygen environment, then you have biochar. So it was a, it's like a, you know, a backyard roaster basically. So, yeah, there none of the farmers were roasting their coffee and you know, they didn't really know what happened to the coffee after they got rid of it. So, they were actually able to see the roasting process many of them for the first time.
1: We've had people talk about social businesses before on the show one uh, fairly recently, but just for, for those who don't understand what it is, can you just tell us briefly what that is?
0: Yeah, it's just it's just a business model where all of the profits go towards a cause so instead of you know having it go into the pockets of people it's going to solve problems whatever they may be so in this case you know many of the children in Laos they they don't have clean water they don't have bathrooms in their school they I mean I got to see firsthand that you know these children have never actually washed their hands before um so to never. be able to show them that no, hang process, on. they
1: never washed, I, Like you're serious about that.
0: I mean, like with soap. No, they, oh. no, they never had. So you know, it's so funny. I would, I would ask the kids, like, when should you wash your hands? And they say, after you eat. You know, it's like no, <laughs> definitely before. So, yeah, I would show them and, uh, you know, there was this like really awkward process of, you know, making sure they wash both hands and not just one. And, yeah, it's incredible what impact such basic knowledge can have on communities and, you know, individuals. And uh, I, I think it was the accumulation of having a, a teaching experience in Thailand and then, you know, this teaching experience where seeing, like, such basic knowledge can, can, yeah, have such a big impact. And the whole time I was there, I was ex- experiencing um, what the culture was like with wildlife. And, you know, one day in the cafe, one of our employees brought this little bird. Uh, it was pink. He had no feathers. Um, and he was trying to feed it solid banana and this, this employee, he's a wonderful guy, but he, you know, he really struggled and he had a hard time taking care of himself, let alone his two children, uh, let alone this baby bird. And my, my mother raised tropical birds. Um, so I've had a lot of experience raising them. And, uh, so, you know, I knew you couldn't feed it solid food. So I ended up uh, raising this, This it was a parakeet, um, a very small parrot, and uh, I raised it myself. And, you know, th- this employee didn't buy it, and the person who took it from the jungle didn't take it with the intention of selling it or making any sort of livelihood for himself. He took it from the jungle just because he could, you know, because he saw it, and it made me realize, like, I don't think they've ever been told that it's better to leave the wildlife in the wild, you know, that it has inherent value alive in that environment. And so I, you know, I I realized what sort of impact this basic knowledge could have if, if children and their parents were taught this. So that's sort of, you know, I was I was even while I was in the coffee house doing these projects, I was, I was just brewing this this idea to um, create curriculums for the kids in these schools. You know, and they have so few resources there. Um, I just I knew it would it could only benefit them and you know the wildlife. So I uh, I left the coffee house. And it was at that point that I decided to start living on a motorcycle. <laughs> so I bought an uh, um, like a older a 1984 Kawasaki ZN700. And uh, I rode across the states and I just started fundraising. And I fundraised to buy um, uh, educational resources to take back to Laos with me so that I could... Properly implement these curriculums, and I, I also joined this incredible wildlife conservation organization out of Laos. Um, and uh, they really needed an education side to their the research and the training that they were already doing. So um, I started bringing this curriculum to really remote village schools that are in vulnerable areas near the wildlife protected. Zones that are also rife with poaching because they're on the border of Vietnam. So um, yeah, just trekking through the jungles with you know binoculars and magnifying glasses and high quality printed posters and and animal masks that I had printed in the states for the kids to wear so that they could really embody the animals and you know hopefully connect to it in a different way. Um, Because they'd never realized or or heard that the animals that they have there are found nowhere else in the world. They were usually very surprised to hear that and to know that people outside of of that area cared. And uh, they'd also never seen high quality photographs, like looking into the eyes of these animals. Maybe they've seen a dead one or, you know, a, a poor drawing of one. But, uh, yeah, it, it really helped, I, th- I think, to, to connect them in a different way to animals that are in their own backyards.
1: The country's struggling financially, and I think when, when it comes to that, it's very difficult to look at those sorts of things when just the day-to-day survival is a problem. Is that what you found?
0: Certainly. I mean, Laos, it's one of the poorest nations. You know, it's landlocked, so there's no port. Um, and they also were very heavily bombed by the U.S. during the Vietnam War. Um, We dropped uh, over 270 million cluster bombs on Laos, and about a third of those didn't explode, so they're still lurking in the landscape. And with every monsoon, the bombs shift, so it's very dangerous for farmers when they're tilling their soil and also children, uh, they have over 300 incidences per year, and about 40 percent of the victims are children. They see something shiny in the earth, and they want to dig it up. So they have many problems. <laughs> and um, you know the thing with, with wildlife trafficking is that a lot of people point to poverty as being the reason for, you know, them poaching the wildlife. But in reality, it's it's not that. It's the increase in affluence in China and Vietnam where they want to afford more rare wildlife, whether it be for uh, luxury meats that they're consuming in restaurants or, you know, like in Vietnam, they're, they're snorting rhino horn as a hangover cure for the next day while they're partying at night. And rhino horn is just keratin, you know, it's as fi- as fingernails. So there's no medicinal benefit. It's just a status symbol.
1: Wow, that's that's really sad. I mean, so is the statistic that you just said, I think you said 270 million cluster bombs dropped. That means like, and you said yeah. a third left over. So we're talking 90 million bombs left over that did not explode originally?
0: Yes. And, uh, Laos was neutrally declared, so they were not in the war. There was a secret air base, um, that the U S had in the North and often they just, they didn't want to land with any bombs in the planes because it would risk the base. So they would just unload them onto Laos. So, uh, people lived in caves, you know, for a decade and it's a, the amount of money that we spent bombing Lao, dwar- it's, it's incomparable to the amount that we have spent cleaning up these bombs, you know, and we really need better practices to locate and clear these UXO because they say it'll take over 100 years to clear that amount of bombs at this rate.
1: UXO is unexploded bombs?
0: Yeah. Unexploded Ordinance. Right.
1: You mentioned that yeah. you'd bought your, your 84 Kawasaki, uh, the ZN 700 and you went around fundraising. What, what are you doing for money when you're doing this? Like you're, you're basically devoting yourself to helping people. How do you get by?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I haven't, uh, quite figured out the balance of, um, making my life passion a sustainable endeavor for myself. So, <laughs> You know, often I just, I'll work in the States in the fall. Like this past fall, I was working at a vineyard and uh, I just save up as much money as I can. And then I go and work for free.
1: (laughs) Stay with us. We're going to be right back after a short break. Quality foot pegs, begin with a quality company behind it. You're not going to get a good set of foot pegs for a small amount of money from some company that um, sort of a fly-by-night thing. You want to buy quality. Why? Because you stand up on them. You depend on these things. You want something that you know is going to last when you drop your bike on it, which I do on these pegs all the time, the IMS pegs, and um, know that they're going to fold down and work properly again. Properly designed means that they, they shed the crap that sticks to the peg when you drop it into the mud. It means that it doesn't change The geometry of your foot setup in a way that hinders your shifter and your brake access it's all part of the things that you pay for when you buy a quality foot peg Um, i'm riding with ims pegs now i think they're absolutely fantastic and they have a wide range of foot pegs available for you from some that are slightly larger which is great larger pegs are are definitely necessary on just about really on any bike but they've got some really wide ones as well as well so for those of you who want something to the let's say more extreme they've all been tried and tested by uh, adventure racers. And of course, IMS has been around for, since 1976. It's a company that makes race products and is well known for durability and quality. www.imsproducts.com and, and anytime you're dealing with them, definitely drop our name, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Coming up next month, May 18 to 20th in Arizona, Overland Expo West. The show if you want to get out there and learn about overlanding there's so much going on I couldn't possibly tell you all about it drop by their website and have a look at what they've got but they're expecting like 14,000 people this year it gets bigger all the time because a lot of people are interested in this but it's also the fact that when they put a show together Overland Expo I mean it is a very thorough show 190 classes almost 500 sessions of uh, programming there 170 presenters there's a lot to do see and learn they've got a motorcycle expedition skills area all kinds of motorcycle things, including a bunch of vendors. There's a lot to see and do. It's the place that you want to go. You can camp there, drop by the website, look what they have to offer, but I'll tell you, you have to get your tickets online. Don't go to the gate and expect to get them there. It's not the way they do it. Um, They sell it online. I imagine they're getting very close to selling out because last time I looked, it was getting close as it was. www.overlandexpo.com Get yourself your pass. Go for the weekend. I would definitely do the weekend and camp there. www.overlandexpo.com And when you do it, definitely drop our name. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Do do you have friends and family who who look at what you're doing and say, well, that's really great, but you know, they're, they're sort of spending their time or maybe they don't even say it to you. Maybe you just see it. I mean, your friends that you, you went to school with, that you hang out with whatever they're off with their career, they're making their money, they're doing their thing. And they seem to be advancing quote unquote, as, as a lot of people see it, their life. And, and yet you're giving everything away. Does uh-huh. that ever, does that ever come up in your mind?
0: Yeah. And I, I prefer it actually. <laughs> I, the thought of, um, Owning a house feels really like a, I don't know, this anchor that I don't, uh, I don't desire that. And um, I, I have experienced giving away or, you know, getting rid of all of my stuff before. You know, once I started living on a motorcycle, I I rode it out to Seattle and I had some stuff in storage and I had a car there and, and everything. And I just. I just got rid of it all and that feeling once, once it was actually all gone and I packed everything that I needed, you know, strapped it onto my motorcycle and then just took off to go head down the coast, there's, there's no way I can describe how that feels. <laughs> it's the most freeing experience ever and I wouldn't trade it for all of the possessions in the world. <laughs> So yeah, I uh, I don't have anything to show for, you know, my my education or the, or my, you know, working life. Um, but I I feel incredibly rich in life experiences. So
1: It's really the reason you can do what you what you're doing, isn't it? I mean, because you know, a lot of people like the sort of the trappings of life, which is fine. And because we're all different. And that's the great thing is, and I would never say that, you know, somebody needs to lean one way because someone else is doing it, it works for them. But the whole idea of, of having things, uh, um, it really ties you down, doesn't it? I mean, if you had a house and you had a car and you had, you know, a dog at home or whatever the case was, I mean, you'd have to think about all this stuff before you head off to Laos or to South America to try and do, you know, some sort of humanitarian effort. It becomes a bit of a problem, really.
0: Oh, totally. And I think, uh, you know, danger lies in comfort. You know, we get very comfortable and, and, uh, I think it's a quote by Krishnamurti who I really love it because, um, he says something like, um, it, it's not the unknown that we fear it's leaving behind the known. So we're, we're never afraid of the unknown. It's just letting go of everything that we've had and known and, you know, stepping away from that. That's really what the scary part is. And it becomes more and more difficult, you know, the more you settle into a life that's, that's comfortable. And so I, yeah, I don't, I don't have, you know, a partner or a family, you know, children of my own, or, you know, I would give anything to have a dog. I can't tell you how much like, (laughs) but yeah, there, there's such roots, you know, such anchors that, It's not possible for me to live my life this way and also have that.
1: But the motorcycle's been a big part of your life. It's been, you know, I guess your your transportation everywhere you go because you rode one in Laos as well.
0: Yep. Yeah, I can't live without riding motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) I fully accept that part of myself. Like I can't live somewhere where the winter wouldn't allow me, you know, to ride as much as I want to. And uh, it's, it's cheap, and it's freeing. It's very fun. Like, it's, it's definitely my preferred way of experiencing the world. Where are you now? Uh, right now I'm in Medellin, Colombia. I landed in Colombia around uh, February 1st and uh, purchased a royal infield Himalayan. So it's a it's a great bike for on road and off road. I think it does a bit better off road. Um, it doesn't have a quite as large of an en- engine for you know straight pavement. Um, so it does really great on some of the rougher roads and the backcountry here in Colombia.
1: And what are you doing in Colombia?
0: So I'm I'm here because. Um, Colombia is one of the richest um, countries in biodiversity, second only to Brazil, um, but first in the world for a number of bird species. And um, there's very interesting things happening here in Colombia. Um, There's, uh, unfortunately, an increase in wildlife trafficking. Um, More and more they're finding, you know, jaguar teeth in China being sold for the price of cocaine, um, or, you know, fish bladders coming, you know, from this area are showing up in, in China. And so more and more of the, the wild resources are being exported illegally. And, um, I, I really want to focus on the positive things. So I'm documenting, uh, the positive actions being taken to protect the ecosystems here, and, as well as the animals and people who depend on them, and uh, I hope that by showcasing these, you know, these people and these projects, they'll receive more attention and potentially more funding. And those successful methods of of conservation, or or you know, just honoring the wild, those will spread, and, and we will see more of that. More of that can manifest. So I'm visiting um, conservation projects, uh, anti-trafficking groups, uh, biological research stations, um, all of these positive efforts that are being done in, in this incredible, you know, the, as they have the most varied landscapes here in Colombia. And they have incredible amounts of endemic species, so species that are found nowhere else in the world. And it's, uh, I actually chose to come here to Colombia before I realized uh the situation which Colombia is at this incredible pivotal moment in history because they are coming out of 53 years of violent war and uh much of that was fueled by profits of a cocaine trade so there's there's been you know around 250,000 people dead and 7.7 million are displaced so it's uh it's this you can see that the the people here they've endured and overcome such such incredible you know tragedies for their country but this peace peace treaty that was signed in, in 2016 it's uh the beginning of this you know long and slow process of reconciliation but uh they're they're on this precipice of uh economic cultural and intellectual rebirth because you know two generations of colombians have escaped colombia to go you know live somewhere more peaceful and they've studied in all areas and now they're returning and um they're also returning to find that much of colombia the the wild places are exists because the FARC, the, you know, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, uh, their presence in these biologically rich tracts of land have prevented it from being developed, from industrial development. So now there's this race for, for scientists to rush into these areas, uh, once war zones, to see what riches actually exists there and you know there's kind of this this fork where it could go either way the the people could harvest the timber and poach the wildlife or they could do something sustainable you know they could go in the way of ecotourism and and protect this richness or or you know manage the resources in a sustainable way so i it's i feel like once i learned all this it's like wow no wonder i felt called to come here for so long and and what an incredible time um, to be here. So you've got a
1: cultural shift. The 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 people who escaped because of the war came back educated. Now look at things differently. They've seen things through other eyes and, and certainly have a different perspective. And then the opening of this, like you said, preserved area, <clears throat> excuse me, just um, accidentally preserved. That's a pretty incredible transition. Yeah. So you're planning to stay there for a while?
0: Yeah, it really is incredible. Um, I I am. I plan to stay uh, around six months. Um, I'm also trying to. I, I love to write, and a lot of writing that I've done has been for you know magazines, just for free because I love to and I want to share you know these stories. So I'm I'm attempting to try to start writing for some income. And that would enab- enable me to stay for as long as I'd like to and, you know, maybe even longer. So we'll see.
1: <laughs> the motorcycles, your transportation, it's, it's what you use to get around. Do you also make time to go off and explore? I mean, is that part of what you're doing or are you just totally focused on, on the task at hand?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty focused on the task at, at hand. Um, there are some areas where, you know, they're only accessible by boat or by plane, and uh, I, I would love to go into these areas, but I don't quite know how it would fit into my objectives. So those, those areas like uh, the, you know, the southern Amazonas of Colombia, they're, they're in the back of my mind. But yeah, because I can't ride there, I'm sort of thinking about um, other areas or other projects that I can visit first.
1: For those that might be considering, you know, traveling through Colombia or going to Colombia for a motorcycle trip, is w- it a place you would recommend now at this point?
0: Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. You know, it's it's really interesting being a woman traveling alone on a motorcycle. And, um, you know, for me, it's been a very compelling way to tell a story about conservation, you know, about wildlife, um, the wealth of wildlife alive and, you know, respected in its own environment. Um, so Southeast Asia is relatively peaceful and, um, you know, I've spent over, over five years there, you know, traveling around and, and, uh, you know, being on a motorcycle. Um, so I, yeah, I, I felt, afraid when i was when i was coming here and as well as when i finally you know got my bike and packed it up and was ready to hit the road because though though there's the peace treaty has been signed it is it is going to be a slow process towards peace so there are still areas that are controlled by armed forces and um people say that You know, you just can't go there, that those those areas are basically off limits. And so, you know, you have to be in contact with local knowledge to know where those places are. Um, But I have to say, so far I've only experienced incredible landscape and very kind people. So I absolutely would recommend it.
1: You mentioned traveling alone as a woman as, as being, uh, you made it sound like it was, it was different for you traveling like that. Do you find there's things that you have to do that's different than if you were a guy? Because I, I, you mentioned about being scared. I mean, I'll bet most guys would be scared as well. I think it's just a matter of, <laughs> you, as a woman, you're probably more apt to be honest about it than what a guy is. But do, <laughs> do you find things that, that there, are, there, there are things or, or uh, um, activities, things you want to do that you might not otherwise do or it somehow hinder? you because you're traveling alone as a woman?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, I try not to draw too much attention to myself. And so sometimes there might be a situation when I want to stop and take a photo, but I see the, you know, the scenario and I, I realize, like how many eyes would be on me and, you know, it might not seem like, the best <laughs> the best idea to do that and so I, I carry on and you know I I miss out on on taking that photo and you know I certainly don't I don't go out by myself at night I don't uh, you know imbibe or or perhaps like take a walk around a town at night um it just it just doesn't seem smart unless I I know that the area is safe and I know where I'm going Um, so yeah, like exploring at night, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that is the wisest. So I've been doing this for a while and, you know, it doesn't matter where I am because everyone is afraid, whether it's in the States, people tell me I'm crazy, that it's not safe, you know, for me to be doing this alone as a woman, even in Laos, which is so peaceful. Um, you know, the old grandmas would tell me like, oh, Somebody's gonna come and slit your throat and take your bike. And I'm just like grandma. You know that's a terrible thought, and no, that's that's not gonna happen. So I, I think people, you know, I don't I don't watch the news, and I I choose to be optimistic and feel welcomed in the world, and so I don't entertain thoughts that um, don't don't allow me to exist that way. But I do. I am smart. You know, I, I do uh, keep myself as safe as possible and uh, try to be prepared for scenarios, you know, as best I can.
1: And and you just don't put yourself in those situations. Like you said, when taking the photograph, I mean, in all likelihood, you could stop and take that photograph and it would have been fine, but you don't take the chance. In other words, you're not putting yourself in those positions where you might, you know, run into a problem.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I have to assess the risk you know, and, and make, uh, make decisions accordingly. So I, yeah, I have to do that all the time.
1: So if you could give some tips here for women that want to travel on their own, what would you have for them?
0: I, I would say just do it, you know, just, uh, go out into a place where you've never been and experience what, what that will will feel like for you because i think if you operate from a place of of feeling loved by the universe and that the universe wants you to go out and explore then i think i think you'd be doing yourself a disservice not to um and there you know there's no time like the present you know the, there's no need to wait for for something else to happen in the future to, to take the opportunity. I think um, you should, you should just try it. You should do it.
1: (laughs) What about dealing with people? Do you, do you find that, you know, if you run into a situation or you have to negotiate something, a problem or whatever, do you find that you have to sort of uh, change your personality or deal with things in a different way than what you would, you know, if if you were back home?
0: Oh, no. No, not really. I mean, I think I think I operate the same no matter where I am if I'm if I'm alone, you know, and I think that's one of the beauties of being on your own is that you're not able to lean on your traveling partner. You know, if you need help or assistance, you need to seek that out in the local community. And I've had the best experiences that there's no way that I could have planned because, you know, I, I looked outside of myself for guidance or for assistance. And, um, yeah, I, I, I believe that people are good and, um, I, I think, you know, compassion is my greatest defense. So (laughs) I think, um, that's just how I operate and you know when 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 that is your frame of reference I think that is often mirrored to you so um yeah I uh you know I've had plenty of flat tires and I care spare tubes with me I I don't have the tools to change it myself so I've, I've had wonderful interactions with people, um, in other countries where, you know, they've helped me with things. And, um, yeah, I, I I really appreciate those experiences. You know, my, uh, my older brother, he's a mechanic. And uh, he's basically given me motorcycle maintenance 101 over the phone. <laughs>
1: which <laughs> You mean when you needed it, when you're sitting on the side of the road?
0: <laughs> yeah, or maybe not on the side of the road because I didn't have reception, but somewhere I could get to be able to call him. Yeah, he, he's so patient. He's explained these things to me. And, uh, you know, I've learned so much about mechanics just because things have broken on my bike. And I have no one else but myself, you know uh, in, in my vicinity, thankfully I have my brother's advice, but yeah, it it really, you know, you have to, um, you have to wear many hats, you know, you have to learn to fix, fix whatever it is you need to fix in that moment, whether it be something on your bike or, you know, a strap on your luggage or, you know, you have to be the navigator, all the, all of these things, it, it really falls on you. And so you've you learn so much about yourself in, in those moments. So
1: I really like this because you, you're going out believing that people are good, believing you won't have problems and believing that people have the best of intentions, but you're not being foolish about it. You're, you're still keeping your head about you and, and um, being careful. Right, definitely. Right. It's a great way to travel. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I guess it's, it, it shouldn't be that you know, surprising. That should be how everybody travels.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree.
1: <laughs> what about a backup plan? Do you, do you have anything sort of in your back pocket so that if anything everything goes wrong, I mean some people talk about, you know, they have got the money for the flight home, etc. Do you do that sort of thing when you go travel somewhere, you have that backup plan that if I mean especially doing what you're doing because you're dealing if you're dealing with with uh, animal trafficking like you mentioned before that there's some powerful forces there, corrupt uh, organizations involved with it. Do you have that plan? Do you have that backup thing where you say if if everything goes wrong, this is what I do?
0: Um, <laughs>
1: no, that's a no. I, 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 I can actually. tell, <laughs> but, you know, the hesitation to just said it all.
0: So I, <laughs> I have people who love me, you know, and, uh, I know that I can call them if, if times get really tough. And I, I also know people, you know, like who, who operate in the world of anti-wildlife trafficking and who have people placed around the world. So they, they tell me, like, call me. If, if anything happens, mm-hmm. like, just call me. Like, I know people on the ground, and, you know, we'll figure it out. So if, if stuff really goes wrong, you know, I, I have faith that it'll all work out.
1: Well, that's probably probably a lot better than the thousand dollars to cover your flight home because nothing's better than having family and friends uh, to to help you out if something goes wrong.
0: Absolutely, you know I travel alone and I do. Uh, you know I'm I'm doing all this solo, but I really I don't feel alone. I feel very supported. So,
1: <laughs> Janelle, before we finish up here, I just want to ask you: Is there anything that you want to sort of put out there, or that the the general public can do? to help with what you're, you're trying to achieve?
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me about, um, you know, volunteering, especially abroad. You know, they feel like they need to go far away from, from their home or from their daily life to, to really make a difference. And I think the most important thing is to be kind where you are to be compassionate with yourself and with others and to just be more kind because we like like we were talking before you know there's so much that science can't explain including dark matter and dark energy which make up most of the universe we truly have no idea how far the ripples of our intentions go and I, you don't know the effects of what being kind to someone else whether it be a loved one, a stranger or yourself, you don't know uh, what the outcome could be. So I think that's incredibly important. And it's something that we can all do wherever we are.
1: Janelle, it was great to get your story. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for your time. It was great to talk to you.
1: So many different ways to live your life. So many different options out there. That was uh, Janelle Kosmoszewski. She was in South America when I spoke with her. And if you want to find out more about Janelle, um, we've got some information about her on the website in the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Motobreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener, of course. Thank you very much for listening to the the show. Well, if you like what we're doing here and you want to help out, we could certainly use your help. The show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And we do get some listener support. We get you know, a fair bit of it, but not quite enough to make things work yet. So consider dropping by the website. And by the way, you don't have to. If you, if you can't or you don't want to for whatever reason, that's fine. I understand that. But if you do like it and you want to support us and you want to keep the show going, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Lots of stuff there on the website. You can list all of our shows for free. Um, our other show, ARR Raw, which is a separate feed. And um, there's also a support button. And if you click on the support button, you're gonna see there's different options there available. Anything $10 or more is gonna get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And if you'd like to do a monthly uh, pledge, on our patron account, then you can click on that and do a monthly pledge and that is super because then we can count on it each month as a budget. And, and as I've said before, spend more time worrying about content and uh, then we don't have to worry about trying to find more advertisers to, to help make the show work. So consider that. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, this is Mary McGee. And you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio.